Welcome to Deep North, the podcast where we tell stories from Iceland. I'm Greta Sigríður Einarsdóttir, editor of Iceland Review, and with me is staff writer Erik Pomrenke, who is going to share his story on oyster catchers and oyster catcher watchers. Under the regular ascent and descent of Keplavik jet traffic, out past the old American radar stations at the northwestern tip of the Reykjanes Peninsula, sits the Suthernes Science and Learning Center. Much like the airport terminal a few kilometers from here, this spit of low-flung land is a place where many visitors to this island come and go. Along with an international team of ecologists, Sylvi Runar Vignison has been working here for the past 10 years studying the oyster catcher, or in Icelandic, tjaldur, a distinctive shorebird whose migratory patterns may serve as a good indicator of climate change. Clamoring into his electric SUV, we drive along the coast through the many small farms and vacation houses, on the lookout for nesting pairs. The bird is easy enough to spot. Black and white, with blood-red legs, eyes, and beak, it stands out from the muted grays and greens of the landscape. It is these distinctive features that give the oyster catcher its scientific name, Hematopodidae, or blood feet. Now, in the lowlands of South Iceland, almost all of these individuals are migrants, meaning they leave in the winter, Sylvie explains. But then you go to the western part of Iceland, and you have a lot of fjords, a lot of shelter. The shores there are full of mussels and other food. These individuals are mostly residents. They don't leave Iceland for the winter. But in this area... Halfway between South Iceland and Breidefjörður Bay, we have a partial migrant population. That's what we're interested in here. As he says this, Sylvie stops, quickly raising his binoculars. Clearly, he sees something I don't. And, pulling the car to the shoulder of the road, he jumps out of the car. Oyster catchers can be found throughout the world, from North and South America to Africa Australia, and Eurasia. The trick, Sylvie later tells me, is keeping your eyes on the exact spot you last saw the chick. Bounding over uneven ground and wire fences, this is more easily said than done. At this time of year, many of them are still about as big as a tennis ball, and the moment they see us, they disappear among the many hummocks and tussocks. We pace left and right across the field for some minutes, but this first pursuit is a wash. The young birds are too fast, and unlike their parents, their mottled plumage blends in perfectly with the landscape. We want to look at post-fledgling, Sylvie explains. Our hypothesis is that the mother leaves earlier. Once she sees that the chick can fly, she leaves, but the father stays and teaches the chicks to feed on their own, and ultimately teaches them whether or not to migrate. And this, we think, is why the chicks will ultimately follow the father's strategy. Because there's something, it could be genetic in the paternal genes, that drives the chick to migrate or not. That's why we have to find families where both parents are ringed. The oyster catcher is notable for being one of the most family-oriented shorebirds. Adults will still feed their young well into their adolescence, after they've developed their mature feathers. It's a curious sight to see, since it looks like one adult is feeding another. Oyster catchers are a very loyal bird as well, 
exhibiting high fidelity to both mate and nest. Indeed, this bird, which can live up to 40 years, can live its entire life with one partner at one site. Migratory oyster catchers are also remarkably loyal to their winter destination. Sylvie explains that the first year will hardwire them to do that for the rest of their lives. They go to one place, and then they just go directly back without stopping year after year. Maybe even to the exact same pier in Belfast. The wintering area is usually very small, maybe just 10 by 10 kilometers, the same with their breeding area in Iceland. But the juveniles, they just go off on an adventure, following some others, and then boom. They find somewhere in Britain or Spain and think, wow, now this is nice, and then they'll just do that for the rest of their lives. Our first attempt unsuccessful, we get back in the car and continue our search. Sylvie spent the first years of his research project ringing the birds of this region. And in theory, we should be able to catch and tag their young and know the migration activity of both of the parents. Lifting his binoculars up again, Sylvie sees another bird in the field. Orange, white, N.A., he reads out. In the beginning stages of these research projects, scientists would just put different colors on the birds. Once they'd tagged quite a few, they started to run out of new combinations rather quickly, though. Because these birds fly all over the world, a coordinated system is needed, and now independent nonprofit organizations like EU Ring regulate how these birds are ringed and tracked. Now, all of them bear a combination of two colored rings and two letters to identify them. What are you doing here? Sylvia wonders aloud, binoculars trained on an oyster catcher some hundred meters away. I remember ringing both of the individuals nesting at this site last year, but now we have an individual that's ringed and one that isn't. Though known for their loyalty, oyster catchers can indeed find new partners, whether after a death or, for one reason or another, choosing a new mate and relocating. This last scenario is known as, quote, true divorce. But if I see the other individual at another site, then we'll know it's real divorce, Sylvie says. Once again, he takes off and runs across the field. The Eurasian oyster catcher is the most widespread member of its family, with populations stretching from Iceland to Korea and eastern Siberia. The West Iceland population is the northernmost year-round population in the world. I assume there might be a more scientific way of capturing the young oyster catchers than bolting madly after them. Perhaps something with an animatronic parent. At any rate, something more technical than simply running after the small birds. But at this age, they can't fly, and chasing after them is about as good a method as any. We'll use traps with the adults, Sylvie explains, half-apologizing. Adults will always return to the nest, so by placing a cage and tripwire over the nest, we can use decoy eggs to lure and trap them for measurement. Wrapped up in a wool cap in his trunk lies a clutch of clay eggs, flecked turquoise, brown, and black. This, he says, is about as arts and crafts as it gets. The second pursuit is more successful than the first, and Sylvie returns holding a downy, dark ball. Lengths of the beak, wing, 
tarsus, and other biometrics are noted down easily enough. Weighing the young oyster catcher proves to be a bit trickier. For an accurate reading, the young bird needs to rest on the scale by itself, unsupported by Sylvie's hand. Gently coaxing the juvenile, Sylvie lightly cups his hands around the bird. For a brief moment, he lets go and quickly jots down the weight. They're a little difficult at this age, he remarks. They get nervous and sometimes they shit all over you. This explains the brown-stained bag where the young birds are kept waiting while Sylvie readies his clipboard and calipers. The oyster catcher became the national bird of the Faroe Islands, thanks to Nolseyar Pautl, a sailor and poet who was charged with illegally breaking the Danish trade monopoly. To protest the unjust monopoly, he composed a poem which cast the sheriff and other local authorities as birds of prey, and himself as an oyster catcher. After all of their information is jotted down, it's time to tag them. Sylvie places the bird back into its waiting bag and vigorously rubs a small piece of PVC plastic against his leg. The cold makes the plastic hard to work with, and he doesn't want to break it. Because although it's just a piece of plastic with some letters, they're rather expensive when ordered in the tens of thousands. Measured and ringed, the young bird is ready to return. And either out of luck or prescience, Sylvie holds the young bird out at arm's length, narrowly avoiding a squirt of shit. Sylvie knows many of these birds by sight. And as we continue our cruise, binoculars at the ready, it seems to me that we're not just in a breeding ground. We're in a neighborhood, each bird having lived in its nest for many years. They're like my friends, Sylvie jokes. I know them, and they're also different. Some individuals are super chill. They'll just go off and wait while I check their nest. Some individuals just lose it. They go mental, fly at my head, attack me. Many of the birds here have already been tagged by Sylvie, and he knows which nesting sites to return to year after year. Their predictability also means that Sylvie is a grandfather of sorts, having ringed and marked parents, offspring, and even generations beyond that. Individual oyster catchers have been known to nest at the same sites for 20 years or more. The oyster catcher is important as a study species, Sylvie explains as he drives. On continental Europe, the shorebird is one of the most studied species of its type. But the population in Iceland still remains understudied. With increasing changes to seasonal weather patterns due to climate change, the oyster catcher may become an important indicator of broader changes in the environment. We want to know how the migration strategy is changing over time, he continues. Historically, we've seen a move from along the coast towards more inland agricultural areas. And we also know that there were no oyster catchers in Iceland at the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago. We know that the first oyster catchers must have been migrants. But then something happened. Birds began settling here, especially in West Iceland along Breidefjordur Bay. It's much more sheltered there, and it's warmer due to the Gulf Stream. These areas became good habitats for oyster catchers, and for some reason, they stopped migrating, or else only migrating very short distances, like from the Westfjords to the Snæfellsnes Peninsula. 
Of the total oyster catcher population in Iceland, around 30% stay over the winter. We know that because we counted them all, Sylvie says somewhat ruefully. Back in 2017, we just went out in the winter and we counted in the areas where we knew oyster catchers were, like in Faxaflói and Breidefjöður. We just counted the whole lot. The estimates were around three to 4,000, but we found 11,000 individuals that wintered here. For a population that often winter in much more southern climes, like Spain and Portugal, these 11,000 winter residents are quite the exception. None of those populations winter at such high latitudes, Sylvie explains. We are way up north when it comes to wintering. It's really unheard of for this species, but it really gives us the opportunity to look at things you can't investigate in other European populations. Because the population's circumstances are identical during the breeding season, but differ in the winter, such partial migration opens up the door for studies that can make interesting comparisons. For instance, if climate change affects winter sites differently, then the cost of migrating could become more significant over time when compared with the resident population that winters in Iceland. The research being carried out on these oyster catchers could have wide-reaching implications. First of all, there have not been many studies on the Icelandic oyster catcher population, he tells me. And secondly, most Icelandic birds are migratory, and with a warming climate, it's likely that we will see more birds staying over the winter. These are changes that could have a huge impact on ecosystems in Iceland. So it's vital that we monitor and research any developments. The main findings so far have resulted in an updated map of the distribution of oyster catchers, both in Iceland and abroad, and a better understanding of how certain nesting locations are linked to certain wintering grounds. The clearest example is that birds that nest in the west fjords are much more likely to be resident over the winter, while birds in South Iceland are much more likely to be migratory, he continues. The distance from decent wintering grounds in Iceland seems to affect their choice to migrate or not. Although the oyster catcher is often loyal to its nest site and mates for its entire 40-year life, these mixed populations mean that many nesting pairs in this region of Iceland have split migratory methods, with one parent staying the winter and one migrating. These cases of mixed parenting follow a pattern, and, in every such case, the chicks will always follow the father's strategy. For the most part, oyster catchers' migrations are solitary. They may migrate with groups of their peers, but it's not as if they're making the voyage under parental supervision. This has puzzled researchers, who are still looking for answers. How do they learn this? Sylvie asks. How is it that they always follow the father's strategy? It may have a behavioral component, it may have a genetic component. It could also be temporal, maybe the father just leaves at a certain time, and this could influence the chick's decision to migrate or not. There's nothing obvious so far, but we wouldn't be able to answer this question without the unique features of this Icelandic population. Over the course of an oyster catcher axe development, it changes in density. Ecologists can estimate the time an egg will hatch with considerable accuracy by measuring its buoyancy in water. With rising global temperatures, 
the coming decades are likely to see many changes to the migratory patterns of birds, like the oyster catcher. It's important to understand the mechanisms by which they choose whether or not to migrate. Studies such as Sylvie's and his teams may be laying the foundation for understanding not just how these birds migrate, but how they learn and adapt to changing environments. Unfortunately, researchers have also begun seeing declines in oyster catcher populations. It's too early to say for certain what the cause is, but climate change and increasingly widespread forests may be to blame. If we would lose the oyster catcher, that would obviously be a tragedy in its own right, Sylvie says. But more generally, Iceland is simply a bird island. We need these animals. You see it on Surtse. From day zero, the day the island was formed, you can see how the birds arrived, how they started to make colonies. The first plants on the island are exactly where the birds were breeding. Now, Surtse has many plants and insects. We have a whole habitat for other species, and it's purely because of these seabirds. To me, it's quite simple. If you want to protect the environment, you don't have to control everything. You try to minimize your impact, and you just let nature do its thing. Thank you, Eric, for sharing uh, this uh, interesting story about the oyster catcher. So, uh, just first of all, do you know why they're called an oyster catcher? Yeah, so this is kind of one of these funny little names um, that has just kind of lingered because of history. And uh, so if I'm getting this right, you know, back in like the 18th, 19th century in New England, they were known as the oyster catcher. And they do eat uh, some bivalves, like mussels, for instance, but they don't specifically eat oysters or at least many of them throughout mm-hmm. the world. And so uh, just this little name from New England uh, for these birds just kind of became the the universal name for them, even though uh, they really don't eat many oysters, at least as, as far as I know. <laughs> Should maybe uh, update that to seafood platter catcher. (laughs) (laughs) Muscle catcher. Yeah, yeah, so just for the people who uh, aren't up to date with their uh, bird knowledge, uh, uh, just a quick description of of an oyster catcher. They're so... Um, visible, so visible, and uh, yeah, they're really distinctive. Around. Yeah, um, you know, so so first of all, they're a wader or a shore, shore bird, uh, and you know that's this class of bird that you know you see around shores, obviously, and they're also called waders because in general they ver- have very high legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like this kind of bird is you know at home in that little area on the beach where the water is kind of coming up and you know like when they see little bubbles in the sand and stuff like they usually peck down like at a crab or something Mm. and so they have like these very high legs usually to stay out of the water and you know i mean like a lot of the most famous uh birds that people associate from iceland besides the puffin of course are shorebirds i mean like specifically loa um, the plover is also a shorebird, um, and you know, like it also has somewhat high legs uh, mm-hmm. for its size. Um, and yeah, so the oyster catcher, it's you know, I mean, I don't have its kind of like weight and height off the top of my head, uh, but <laughs> like it, like it's a relatively s- like medium-sized bird. It's like a pretty average size, but you know, like the really distinctive thing about it. Um, yeah, it's proportions are a little off because its its legs are so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, like the really distinctive thing about it is its colors, and 
uh, you know, um, <laughs> this is a little bit uh, silly, but I mean, it just kind of reminds me of uh, this children's joke. Uh, I don't know if this is like an international thing. <laughs> um, and it, 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 yeah, what was it like? Like what's what's black, white, and red all over? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a newspaper. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but yeah, so like they are very distinctively uh, black and white, but then they have really, really, really red, um, um, yeah, beaks, legs, yeah. and eyes, actually. Their eyes are super red. That is creepy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, since you mentioned the plover, obviously, in Iceland is uh, the most famous herald of spring, but the... The oyster catcher is a, is a, it's a summer bird as well. It's always refreshing to see them because you know that summer is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these uh, migratory birds always have such a hit. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it kind of just lifts everybody's spirit like that time in April, May, when you just start seeing the birds again. Mm. Um, you know, really... You know, like like at least for me, that's when I really feel like spring has arrived. But you know, I mean, again, uh, the curious thing about these birds is that they actually aren't all migratory, um, and that is like the really unique thing about these birds, is that uh, you know we wouldn't really expect that many of them to be wintering here mm. in Iceland. You know, I mean, up to like eleven thousand of them, um, and you know, for a bird that spends a lot of time in places, you know, like yeah, Spain and Portugal. Uh, wintering on the Snæfellsnes Peninsula or like somewhere in Breidafjörður is pretty extreme. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Selvi mentioned that it's a bird island. Is he? Is he? Does he specialize in the oyster catcher? Or yeah, I mean that that that's definitely what the research project is on. But you know, I mean, I think um, nobody in Iceland is ever just allowed to be a complete specialist in one very small thing. I think uh, everyone, you know, because it's a smaller society in general, you know, like there's maybe just a couple professors just working in one field instead of one like hyper-specific niche. So everyone is usually kind of like a jack of all trades. Um, and, you know, I mean, also it's kind of just cool to go to the Sudanes, um research center uh which actually if anybody's curious is also open to the public uh like it is also a museum um and so you know if you want to go there with your family and uh learn about birds and marine life in iceland uh that can be a fun family outing um but you know i mean like like it's a pretty cool team because you know there's just like a lot of um different people working on like surprisingly different projects but they're all kind of working together um, but, you know, on the day that we were out in the field, um, you know, it's also kind of funny uh, because, you know, there is just this whole international network of, I suppose, ornithologists and ecologists uh, who, you know, are studying these similar species. And it was just kind of funny because, you know, Sylvie kind of had to, like, uh, do a couple errands and kind of just, like, run some favors for some friends. <laughs> he, like, like he was saying how he had, like, a good friend in Portugal who was also studying turns and how he needed to kind of uh, just, like, take some turn blood uh, <laughs> to, to kind of do his friend a favor. Uh, so we kind of spent um, a little time trapping some turns as well. And uh, for people who don't know, uh, turns are notoriously aggressive and defensive of their nesting sites. Yeah, they do so a bit of their own blood taking as well. Yes, it is. Um, it, 
that was definitely the more adventurous part of the outing. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, uh, just like a like a week or two later, um, I was out by uh, Thinkvedlid camping, and um, unfortunately, my wife sustained a direct hit by a turn, oh, no. and that was not not fun. <laughs> yeah, because they they're small, but they can they pack a punch. Oh yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. It, it, it was actually kind of funny because um, like I took some pictures uh, after just being out in the field. And, you know, I mean, like, uh, I I really liked some of the pictures, you know, like, like the turns especially are just like a very distinctive bird that I've always liked. But it was just funny because some of my Icelandic friends were just like, you're helping these animals. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quite vicious. I hope, I hope your uh, wife recovered. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so another really interesting species uh, that we kind of briefly uh, saw and kind of worked a little bit with out in the field that day though, um, is so it so it actually has a much better name in Icelandic, mm-hmm. uh, Odinshani, uh, and there's also a very similar bird called Thorshani, um, and so in English these birds are called phalaropes, um, and so Odinshani specifically is the red-breasted or red-throated, might be confusing that uh, phalarope, um, and you know I mean like for me it's just really interesting how different these birds can be that in a lot of ways are so similar. Uh, so, you know, for instance, um, the oyster catcher lives for up to 40 years. And, you know, like I mentioned, uh, it is kind of famous for its breeding strategy, which is very loyal. And I mean, in some sense, I think this is also what kind of makes them, yeah, I mean, like a little bit more personable somehow, you know, yeah. it's like like they live to be 40 years old, like they have homes for that entire time in the same place, basically. And a lot of them, uh, you know, settle down with the same partner for their entire life. Um, so, you know, like there's something very clearly human about that. Mm. Um, and to identify with. Yeah. And so, but then on the other hand, like the phalarope, um, uh, has, you know, what is known as a promiscuous breeding strategy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so they like, they, they're, like they're kind of noteworthy for doing a kind of uh, gender swap type thing where it is uh, the female that kind of goes out and like wins the bread and everything. And it's like the male that stays at home. But then also like while the female is out and uh, winning bread, you know, she'll kind of like, like see other guys and stuff. Um, How progressive. I, I I know it's, it's a very progressive bird, but you know I mean like 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 it is kind of interesting how in a lot of ways like these birds fill a very similar ecological niche. Like they're both shorebirds. Like they more or less eat a similar diet. Um, mm-hmm. I mean like 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 they do look different just in terms of their coloring, but you know I mean like in a lot of ways they're very similar, and just how they have arrived at kind of like totally different lifestyles is <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and actually something that's kind of interesting about that bird specifically is, um, I believe, uh, it used to be known as like the gray breasted phalarope. Um, and this is because they were always seen in the UK in their winter colors. Uh And for a long time, people didn't even know that they turned like this really, really bright red, um, in the summer. And so, like, for a long time, people would see this bird, and they just assumed that it was always gray. And I just, like, think that's really cool that, like, yeah. like for a long time, uh, we didn't even really know that this bird had, like, this whole other range of colors. Because if you see them, uh, like, like they're like they're pretty small. Like, they're noticeably smaller than the oyster catcher. Um, actually, if you go to Thingvatlavat in the summer, uh, there's a lot of them there. And, they're, like, they're pretty small, and they have, yeah, like, this really distinctive, like, rusty orange-red 
really like bright chest. Um, and yeah, like it's a very beautiful small bird. Um, but I mean, everybody except the Icelanders basically didn't know that they were that nice. I will say it's also just so fascinating to me, speaking of birds names in particular, because they're so different, like there's no uh, consistency uh, between languages, like uh, I don't know what the phalarope, uh, <laughs> where that originates. But uh, if you want to give a quick explanation of the translation of Odinsani and Thursani. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so like literally that would be, you know, uh, like Thor and Odin's hen, right? Oh, cockerel. Yeah. Yeah. Co- cockerel. Cockerel. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, yeah, it's, it's masculine, right? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And there's, uh, uh, yeah, as I was wondering about the oyster catcher, I mean, there's a seagull called Fitl because it spews uh, foul odorous. Uh, yeah. That's the, that's the fulmar, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, I, <laughs> I was, you know, kind of doing some bird research uh, in going into this piece, piece and, um, you know, I, I really like the fulmar. Uh, I think it's very cute. Uh, <laughs> like, it, it, it's not a gull, but it looks very similar to oh, a no, gull. No, it's, it's a fulmar, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, but, I mean, I think that a lot of people who don't, like, live around these birds would maybe see it and assume it's some sort of gull. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like, it's a little bit smaller. Um, and, I mean, for lack of a more scientific way of saying this, I think it's just a bit cuter. Um, but <laughs> I'm not a seafaring person myself, so I... Yeah, but um, the Faroese eat a lot of them. And uh, well, like, like when they're juvenile, they can't fly yet. So they're just kind of sitting in the water. So they just kind of drive their boats by and just pick them up. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I know the acts were real popular, uh, especially in the in the olden days in the West Fields where there are a lot of birds' cliffs. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you for that uh, interesting uh, tale about the birds in Iceland. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, just briefly, um, when I was writing it, I just got really interested in just the birds that I saw in my daily life. And I encourage any visitor to Iceland to just, you know, pick up a little bird guide book or something and just, you know, doesn't have to be super fancy binoculars or anything, but um you know, like there's really interesting birds everywhere, uh, just are, even I mean, in Reykjavik in, and by the harbor and stuff. Yeah, and if you uh, go further out, especially if you go to any islands or like birds cliffs or anything there, you, you know, m- many of them uh, stay super close to people. You can go out to Borgfjordrestre and, and view puffins from just a couple of meters away. Yeah, and you know, like when you know what you're looking at, it is just more interesting and you start kind of like noticing different things and like yeah. you notice how they behave and um different calls and, and yeah. yeah i don't know there's you know, more so to icelandic birds than puffins there are actually <laughs> there are thank you well thank you for listening deep north is the official podcast of iceland review the oldest continuously running english language publication on iceland covering community nature and culture if you enjoyed listening please consider subscribing to Ice on Review at our website.